Good morning. It's okay, I'll let it slide. All right, so this morning, we are continuing with our sermon series on Acts. We are in Acts chapter 6 to like 8-ish, you know, 6-ish to 8-ish. And we're talking about the life of Stephen. For those of you who don't know Stephen, uh, he's a character in the Bible in Acts. And the story of Stephen's life is he was chosen by the apostles, by the people, and then affirmed by the apostles to be a leader in the church. He then goes to fulfill that calling, to be a leader, and he is killed for it. And I've titled this term, The Religion of Stephen. The Religion of Stephen. First, I have a question for you guys before we start and get into it. Also, this sermon's going to be a little different. I don't know if you guys know or track or even care how I normally do sermons, but normally what I do is I read the whole passage of Scripture, and then we break it down bit by bit. So we're going to do the opposite today. We're going to start off, and we're going to dive right in. We're going to break down a little bit of an overview of each one of these verses on Stephen, and then we're going to go back through, and we're going to read the whole story again, uh, cover to cover. But first, I have a question for you. Can you define religion? What does the religion mean to you? And this is not a rhetorical question. I'm going to be seeking answers. If you don't give me answers, I will call on people. So, real question. How do you define a religion? Not necessarily Christian. How do you find a religion? How we live our faith? That's good. That's a good one. I had a teacher in college. He goes, I'll wait. Yeah, get it over with. Guys, you're the second service. No one else is coming in after you. They might not even look for you. <laughs> Practice with repetition. Oh, okay, okay. At least one more. At least, minimum. Laws and orders defined by the group. Lisa gave the same answer last time, and it's still a good answer. Great job. Okay. Mm. You want to come preach? I could. <laughs> no, that's good. That's a word. Yeah, yeah. Wow, he's jumping ahead. Yeah, for real. Anyway, else? Those are good. So I Googled some definitions. One of them, a particular system of faith and worship. Very similar, very similar. Another one is a set of beliefs to explain one's life's questions, which I thought was interesting. We follow religion just to explain questions. Another one said a cause principle or system of beliefs held to with faith. And this is not an exhausted list. If you Google anything, you know, you know, there's plenty more. And Marion Webster <laughs> defines it as the belief in and worship of a superhuman power or powers, especially a God or gods. Yeah. If you're taking notes, I'm going to read it again. 
the belief in and worship of a superhuman power or powers, especially in a God or gods. So today we're going to answer, how do we define religion or should we define religion? So jumping in, the life of Stephen. This guy, Stephen, really interesting character in, character in the Bible. My mentor, Stephen, is actually named after the biblical Stephen, which is a fun fact. So Stephen, this is from last week's message. This is where Pastor Ted ended. But it goes on to say, the, this proposal pleased the whole group. So the apostles proposing these new teachers. And so they listed. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmen, Parmenas, Parmenas, did that last service too, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. That's the first time we see Stephen, and he's being ushered in now in this group of people who are going to teach. Stephen was listed first in that list. And I believe that's because it said right after, Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit. He was defined as someone who knew the Holy Spirit. He had a relationship with this guy, Jesus, who in turn transferred over into a relationship with the Holy Spirit. What's that look like? Well, we're going to read about what that looks like in Stephen's life. So as he started his ministry, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Great wonders and signs. What, what would you describe as a great wonder or sign? Like, spaceships are super cool, right? Like, that's a great power, right, that we have as humans, is we can go to space now. Like, that's crazy. Would someone say, like, the pyramids, a great wonder? One of the seven? So there's these things that we consider great. But here, when it says these great wonders and powers, it's referring to miracles. Right? He performed these wonders and mir these miracles in front of people. These miracles that defined his ministry. That he would do these great, wonderful things that nowhere else was happening. He was performing miracles and signs that drew people into his ministry. All right, so he performed these great signs and wonders among the people. And you think he did that because he was a real gifted healer? No. There's a lot of blank stares, guys. I need, I need you to work with me. I need you to work with me here. No, he did this because the Holy Spirit was in him. As we're him. He had such a close relationship with the Holy Spirit, right? He took for real, for serious, the fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside of him, right? And so if it lives inside of him, that means he's enabled, the Holy Spirit does stuff through him, right? That's a real relationship with the Holy Spirit is that he would go and perform miracles. That's how it was shown in Stephen's life, So he, he did this ministry that was shown by these miracles and these wonders. And then we see this story, in my opinion, is very Jesus-esque, 
we see a lot of similarities. So opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. Does anyone here know what the term freedmen Jews are? Thank you, Dave. <laughs> One person with a head shake. No, I didn't either. That's okay. Um, so freedmen Jews. So they were these Jews, right? Who, when the Roman empire was conquering land, they were taken by the empire and they were distributed as slaves, basically it's different slavery than we think of in that context. But so they were taken and they were distributed all around the Roman empire as slaves and eventually got freedom. Whether it's they worked it off, they paid it off, someone paid it off for them, whatever, they became free. Historical documents suggest that Alexandria, which was a major city here, major city in the ancient world, was one-fifth, one-fifth of their population were freed men Jews. Jews who were freed from slavery. And so, but this story takes place in Jerusalem, which means these are freedmen Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria and Asia and all these other provinces who came back to Jerusalem. All right, you tracking? So they were gone, now they're back. What brought them back to Jerusalem? That's the big question. And long story short, their religion. The fact that they were Jews, they wanted to be in Jerusalem so bad. They wanted to follow the law. They were very, uh, no, national, what, like, patriotic, but national level. What's the word? Someone help me out. Nationalistic. Is that, is that a word? It's a word now. They were very nationalistic. Uh, like, like they really cared about where they came from. They really cared about where they were living and they wanted to live there in particular, right? They, they were very tied down that in Jerusalem, this is where like true Judaism is. In Israel, this is where I have to live. They chose to come back because they have a strong relationship there with their religion and their ancestry. They hail from there, so they wanted to go back there. Which shows what Sammy tried to help me out with earlier, a very legalistic view. That God is working more, or God's powers felt in Jerusalem. So, these people, these Jews, who would later take Stephen, were very, very upset with this whole idea of Christianity. They didn't like this idea of people who were once Jews, who once had true faith, and then left it to follow some guy who died. And now they're trying to take more of these people who have a true faith. So they didn't like Christians coming in. They didn't like people changing Christianity. There was a lot of stigma. There was a lot of not good feelings there. So they would come. They would oppose Stephen. They would argue Stephen. They would get with these people. Like, oh, we're going to get him this time, you know? And so... They would come, they argue him, but then it says they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him, Stephen, to speak as he spoke. The wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Have you guys ever, I'm sure we've all been in debates, right? But who's ever been in a debate, especially about God sometimes, and like they ask you a question, you answer the question, they immediately come at you with another question, right? They're trying to poke holes in whatever you try to believe. Politics, this happens a lot in. I don't talk politics, but I'm assuming, no, just kidding. I know people. Right? But we make these arguments 
that people just poke holes in, right? Like this whole kind of generation, even this culture that we live in now is poking holes in other people's beliefs, right? And that's why I feel like we're in. And so that's what they were trying to do to Stephen. But the Holy Spirit gave him so much wisdom that they could not stand. They couldn't, they had no ground to stand on. He had such a foolproof way of speaking about God. The Holy Spirit did it for Stephen, which means the Holy Spirit could do it for you. Because whatever happened then, God could still do now, right? So a char- another characteristic of Stephen and the way he lived and knowing the Holy Spirit was that how he talked. There was wisdom in how he talked. Not from his own, not because he was super smart, but because the Holy Spirit gave him wisdom. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Holy Spirit, give me wisdom in this or that or this thing or that thing. Right? Well, like, like we've asked God sometimes as a last resort. I mean, I'm speaking for myself now. Like, God, I, I just don't know what to do. I tried everything I could. What's next? Stephen had that view on wisdom before they even had it. Then verse 11, they secretly, so again, very Jesus-esque of the story. They secretly persuaded, so this is the Jews, the freedmen, these people who are trying to speak out against Stephen. They secretly persuaded men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. He didn't, but they were creating this false narrative, this lie, to get Stephen stoned, executed, persecuted, whatever. Right? One theologian puts it this way. And this is kind of summarizing the whole situation that we've read so far. This is really interesting. Listen to this. Believing in Jesus as the only one who saves us from sin implies that the sin of Israel is no longer atoned for through animal sacrifices. And that purity and holiness are no longer established by rituals prescribed by the law, but rather on account of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. Stephen is saying, whatever you're doing to gain righteousness, sacrificing animals, going to church, getting good synagogue education, then going on to seminary or apprenticeship or whatever, that's not going to save you. It's going to be Jesus who saves you. And they didn't like to hear that. They didn't like to hear that. So then the plot unfolds. So they stir up enough people. They stir up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. And they seize Stephen and bring him before the Sanhedrin, the court. They produce false witnesses who testify. This fellow never stops speaking against the place, against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting at the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. So as they're as they're throwing out these accusations, as these witnesses are coming up, the people in the courts are looking at Stephen. And what do they see? And they saw his face was like the face of an angel. And I think of like Moses, when his face glowed, oh, I'm doing it again. When his face glowed or gloomed or gleaned, what, his face was shining. I did that last service too. What's the past tense of glowed? I have no idea. But his face was shining so radiantly. 
because he spoke to God. Like, and, and Moses just spoke to God, right? That was it. That's all Moses did was speak to God. Stephen has God inside of him. And when he's leaning into that, when he's leaning into God inside of him, his face was like an angel shining. That same God we have inside of us. Do you realize that? The same God who's carrying Stephen throughout this whole thing, who's performing miracles through him, who's giving him wisdom, who's making his face shine. It's the same Holy Spirit that lives in you. Then the members of the Sanhedrin ask him if he has any last words or anything he wants to say. And then chapter 7, there's a long, long uh, sermon that he gives, which we'll look at later. And at the end of the sermon, oh, I see what happened there. My bad. I forgot to copy over the slides for my finished product to this one. My bad. Then, so he gives his whole sermon. And the members of the Sanhedrin heard this. So after he finishes preaching, they hear this and they were furious at him. They gnashed their teeth at him, right? They, they were so mad at what he was saying. They were gnashing their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, full of God inside of him, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He saw it. He saw God stand at the right hand of God. Look, Stephen said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He saw it. The Holy Spirit gave him the ability to see heaven in that moment. To see heaven. And so today's day, Pentecost, right? Who knows what Pentecost is? Raise their hand. Oh my gosh. I, I know. I know more than five people know what Pentecost is. Who knows what Pentecost is? Raise their hand. Hey, there we go. Okay, so Pentecost, I mean, it doesn't matter if you know or don't know. I'm going to explain it anyway, but I just wanted to know. So Pentecost is the day the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and the disciples, all the people who followed Jesus after Jesus died. And tongues of, and tongues of fell on the people, and they were speaking all these different languages. And people were hearing them and interpreting them in their own language, and everyone understood what was going on. It was raw, and it was this chaotic mess. Right? That's what happened at Pentecost. But then Peter throws in this, which I never knew before. As he's recounting Pentecost, he says this, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. At this they covered their ears. Oh, my goodness. We're not, not going to worry about it. We're not going to worry about it. Okay. Acts 2. I'm so sorry, guys. Acts 2, verse 32 to 37. says this. I can find it. God has raised Jesus to life. This is the account on Pentecost. God has raised this Jesus to life. We were all witnesses of it. 
exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God seen at the right, Jesus seen at the right hand of God was seen and was witnessed by everyone at Pentecost. Was witnessed. They were all witnesses of it. That's what it says in Acts 2. And so now Stephen is seeing the exact same thing. They were both granted this vision of Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne. Why? I'll tell you why. It was to make the it was to make them better churchgoers. It was so that they would go every Sunday, not miss a Sunday, and they would lead Bible study. That's a joke. That's not at all why they did. They didn't grant them these visions to make them better churchgoers. They grant he was granted these visions, and all these people were granted these visions to know that the Holy Spirit and that Jesus is alive, to know Jesus is alive, to know the presence of Jesus is inside of them and is dwelling in them, that they have a relationship with him. There's a relationship with God who lives inside of us. God that enables us to do so much greater than we could ask, think, or imagine. God who receives greater things than we could ever ask, think, or imagine enables us to do these great things, just like Stephen did. He's not a different Holy Spirit from then till now. You might say, well, I don't perform miracles. I don't see miracles happening. I mean, miracles happen. Sometimes, very similar like it says there. Sometimes not. But there's still a work and there's still a person at work in our lives. And, and Stephen is seeing that. The Spirit of the Lord shows people these visions. I don't know, some of you may have had a vision before. I don't know if I've ever had a vision. That's fun. But he shows people visions, and he works in people's lives to show that there's a move, that he's continuing to move. So now, back to Stephen. When they heard this, right, when they heard Stephen's vision of seeing Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne— they covered their ears, yelled at the top of their voice, and ran at him. What does that remind you of? Don't say me. Even though I've been known to, just kidding. <laughs> what does that remind you of? A child. They're acting like children. They're throwing a temper tantrum at Stephen saying he sees God. That's how opposed they were. They throw a temper tantrum. These adult men throw a temper tantrum. So they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. We don't know Saul yet, but we'll get to know him a little bit more. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That sounds like a prayer you'd pray at the end of life, right? It sounds like a death prayer. But I was reading one theologian and completely changed how I saw this whole thing. It's not a prayer of someone dying. It's a prayer of someone who knows he's entering eternal life. Lord, receive my spirit. 
It's not, Lord, if you want to receive my spirit. It's not, Lord, thanks for all this time I had on earth. It's, Lord, I'm going to be with you real soon. This assurance of this salvation from Jesus who died for his sins, assured by the Holy Spirit living inside of him. Right? The salvation where no matter what he did in the past, he's so sure now of his relationship with Jesus. He's so sure now of the Holy Spirit living inside of him that there's nothing that's going to separate him. Neither life nor death nor angels nor demons nor past nor present that's going to separate us from the love of God. He's going to be with the Father. And he knows that. And that's his prayer right here. And there's this offer of salvation when you know the Holy Spirit. There's this offer of salvation when you know that Jesus died for you. And he died preaching it. We'll read later. He died saying, how do you not know Jesus died for your sins? How do you, as we read in history, how do you still believe animal sacrifices are going to be good enough for you? That going to church once a week is going to be good enough for you. That even getting education is going to be good enough for you. It's not. Jesus is going to save you. And I, I'm going to tell you right now, if you've never accepted that, if you never thought about that, he could save you now too. You don't have to die. There's hope after death. There's hope now in the living that you could withstand what's coming, the trials that are coming. Withstand the people coming to criticize you. Based off the Holy Spirit living in your life. It's the promise of God. But then I'm also here to tell you that the promise is not going to be easy. Because he, he says, Lord, receive my spirit. And then he falls on his knees and he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. That's another word for died. He died. Moments before his death, Jesus asked, very Jesus asked. And I'm telling you right now, this wasn't Stephen who said this. He said, forgive them. Don't hold the sin against them. As he's actively being stoned. That's the Holy Spirit in him. He doesn't have that much love to give out. No, no person on this earth has that much love to give out in themselves. That's the Holy Spirit at work inside of them. Continue on, chapter 8. Saul, here's this guy Saul again. Approved of their killing of him. Approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, and they mourned him deeply. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, and dragged off both women and children and put them in prison. This belief in God, this relationship they had, this Holy Spirit living inside of them, drove them to prison. Now, I don't know about you. Raise your hand if you would go to prison for yourself. Good, I wouldn't either. Oh, you guys would? That's bold. Now, nah, if Sammy could go in my place, go ahead, Sammy. <laughs> but something greater than themselves 
right? There, there's something in their life that he said, this is worth going to prison for. Stephen said, this is worth dying for. And I promise you that that wasn't, yeah, that church service I went to last Sunday. Oh, what that, what that pastor said over there. Oh, it was the Bible study I led. You know, that's worth me going to prison. No, but it's the Holy Spirit living inside themselves. Something greater than them. A greater Holy Spirit living inside of them. Saying, jail? That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm willing to go. But I'm not going without the Holy Spirit. It's a strength that we don't have in our own righteousness. That we don't have in ourselves. So if you're taking that call I said earlier, or if you're even thinking about this in your own life, it's really easy to admit. I mean, nowadays it's really easy to admit in, in our context. That yeah, Jesus died for our sins. I go to church Sundays and, and I'm really happy. But is it easy to say that when persecution comes? It, it's not. I'll tell you that right now. It's not easy. But that's because their Jesus, that's because their Holy Spirit, which is the same Holy Spirit that lives today, isn't the Holy Spirit that needs you to go to church every day. Go to church. Church is great. But it's not a Holy Spirit that says, okay, you can be good enough. It's a Holy Spirit that actually grabs their life and grabs every bit of them and pushes them towards something great. Pushes them towards life with them in the hardness in the joys we can be strengthened by the Holy Spirit at this point we ask Sammy to come up and what we're going to do is we are going to read from beginning to end Acts chapter 6 to 8 the whole life of Stephen and I want you to think of two things the first thing I want you to think of is just what was going through his mind. What was going through his life? What was happening in his life that pushed him to do these things? But the second thing is what would you do if you were in his place? What would you do as we read this if you were there, if you were him? I'm going to admit his sermon gets pretty long, but, but listen to the conviction in the words. If you want to open up, it's Acts. We're going to start in 6. 6, 8, and we'll, we'll read on from there. So yeah, Acts 6, 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Oppression arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Holy Spirit had spoken, gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place. 
and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom Moses has handed down. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Philistines and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to the land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him, and he rec rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler of Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in a tomb that Abraham had brought from the sons of Hammer at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and opposed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled for, as a foreigner for as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in a desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. 
Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have, in, I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who had made you ruler and judge? He has sent me to, he has sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected and in him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will, be, who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan, the idols you made for worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law, and it was given through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of the young man called Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. When he fell on his knees, he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. I don't know if I could preach a whole sermon like that, being led to death. An account of Israel's history and the sin shown by their fathers, by our fathers, and how only Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior that could save them. 
At the sound of that, they took Stephen, stoned him, killed him. At the feet of this man named Saul. What was Stephen's attitude during it? What was Stephen's perspective during it? Lord, receive my spirit. Do not hold the sin against them. The fact that neither death nor life can separate him from God. And how in life, it wasn't the God of who the culture told him to believe. But it was a God who he knew. He knew, he knew, he knew personally. And that same man, Saul, whose real name is, I mean, that's both technically true. But yes, yes, that's the answer I was looking for. Paul would later go from persecutor to preacher. He would go from killer to this man saved by the grace of God. And this is what he writes in Philippians 1, verse 21 to 26, which I think so much so applies to the life of Stephen. And he says this, For me, Paul says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus Christ will abound on account of me. It's better I stay with you so that you can more so boast in Christ. You ever think about that? It's better that we live here. We live in the body. Not because God's waiting for us. God's waiting until we grow in that mature Christian. But so that those people around us can abound, abound, be overflowed, overflowed, overflowing, overflowing, overflowed, overflowing, outpouring, synonyms, give me another one, but it can be so filled up with the joy of God, the people around you, it's better that I live, but to die is gain, I'd rather die, who has that worldview? Nobody but Christians and not Christians who are just a religion. But Christians who know Christ and who know the Holy Spirit and who are so filled with him. It's an anti-religious call. It's saying the exact opposite of what everyone else said. Which is you adhere to a set of beliefs. You follow this thing. You follow that thing. It's, he's in you. He's with you. He's filling you up. You don't have to strive for anything. But everything you need, he is. Stephen understood that. 
Paul would come to understand that after years of persecution, if the Holy Spirit could take Paul from what he was to who he became, he could do the same with you. You're not too far gone. Hopefully you haven't killed thousands of people because if not, then you're pretty good. So the question I have for you as we close is, is Jesus your life or your religion? Because here, we don't really have to choose. But they had to choose then. It was a choice. Is he your life or your religion? That's hopefully your answer. I'll let you ponder that. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, God, we thank you. God, we thank you that for no reason at all, but your love that you died for us, that you sent your son to the cross because you loved us. And God, we think that we don't have to strive for anything. That's a completed work. But we're called to know you, God, to know you so intimately, know you more than we know anybody else in the world. So God, we pray that we help, that you help us. God, help us to know you. Help us to be filled by you. Be filled with the spirit just as Stephen was. Be filled with the spirit so that in whether life or death, Lord, we proclaim your name. That we understand that to die is gain. That the things of this world are temporary. But you are so good. And you have everything that we need. God, help us to realize that in our hearts. Help us to know that in our lives. So God, as we go out from here and as we close, help us to sing that in this song. That Lord, we're not singing because we're at church, which we do every Sunday. But we're singing because you know us and you love us and we know you. God, set a fire in our souls. Help us to love you. And God, give us the wisdom of how to do it. Because we don't know. We try, but we don't. Help us come before you humbly. And God, just like you say in Psalms, help us to hold the right hand of our Father as you lead us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.